The rest of us, if you're stuck up here, go ahead and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 11. We're just finishing up our, our series in Ecclesiastes here. We, the, there's only 12 chapters, so next week um, I haven't completely outlined the sermon yet, but uh, unless some, something changes, it'll probably be, next week will probably be our last week in Ecclesiastes. Um, but this week we're going to be covering the entire verse or entire chapter of Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Uh, there's only 10 verses in it, number one. But again, and also it's just him just kind of summarizing and, and kind of giving some more wisdom, um, some more practical wisdom uh, that we we kind of went through last week. And he, he began to do that in Ecclesiastes chapter 10. It was kind of straightforward wisdom. And again, we find straightforward wisdom in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, which is good, right? Because as we've gone through the series, we, or th- through the through the book, we, we've seen that he's employed irony and sarcasm and and cynicism and all these uh, downer, you know, dark themes to to demonstrate his main point as he's writing um, that the wisdom that he gave was given by God, and as he examined the world, that he he used the senses that God had given him and, and the the understanding and the intelligence that God had given him to reason and to rationalize everything that was done under the sun. And he's, he can gave us the conclusion at the beginning of his book that everything under the sun is vain. It's all futile. It's futility. It means there's no meaning and purpose that can be found. True meaning and purpose. Right? We go to work. We, we gain riches. But we all, as he repeated again and again, we're all faced with the same dilemma, and that's death. We just, no matter what happens in this life, no matter how wise we are, how, how uh, unwise we are, how poor we are, how rich we are, we all meet that same fate. And so if, if this world is, and all that existed in it was just bound up in what we could observe under the sun, we would have to conclude with Solomon that truly life is meaningless. But as we... Begin as he gives to been giving us little crumbs of this, uh, his understanding of who his God is, who the Creator God is, and and ultimately he will conclude that the true definition of the true uh, purpose of his letter. I would I would state, I would contend for in Ecclesiastes chapter twelve is that uh, ultimately we need to find meaning and purpose in fearing God, and keeping His commandments to to walk and live purposely in this life, not for what we can achieve and what we can acquire under the sun for our own selves, but how we can live for the God's glory and for the glory of God. And last week we began to, to take what the, the, the practical wisdom that Solomon um, gave us in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, and I uh, took liberty to, to expound that into the New Testament context of what it means to, what does it look like to glorify God? I mean, I can, I've said that for many different sermons throughout Ecclesiastes. We need to glorify God in our walks and our lives. But what does that look like? And we begin to discuss what the New Testament portrayed to us, what it looked like in Hebrews chapter 12, right? To set aside every sin and there are things that beset us so we can run the race with endurance. We are to kill those things off that are hindering our walk with God so we can glorify Him in those things. And uh, I'm going down the sermon last week, so back to the, this week's sermon. Um, but it's, it's really important to me that we, we try to, to apply these things in our life, right? The practical meaning of what it means to fear God. We know that means we have God in our focus. We keep right looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. What does that look like? 
How does that play out in our lives? James says we need to be doers of the Word and not just hearers only. And that's what it means to to glorify God in your life. To take what God has given us in His Word and to, to... Allow the Spirit to begin to work in us and to transform us into the image of Jesus as we keep our focus on Jesus, as we walk in the fear of the Lord and desire to glorify Him. And I believe um, Solomon gives us some really good advice as far as prudence is concerned and exercising prudence in our lives in the practical sense. And again, we have to take it with the understanding that he's, again, observing everything, right? His, his view is everything that's happening under the sun. And so there's some, there's some wise sayings about exercising prudence practically in this life. But as I have with pretty much every sermon in Ecclesiastes, right, I want to take it to, with the New Testament context, what it means to exercise prudence in our lives with the New Testament as our guide, with Scripture as our guide. So, Lord willing, that's what we'll be doing today. So, exercising prudence. Prudence means to, to use careful judgment that allows someone or us to avoid risks or danger. And it's usually referring to the future. So, we, 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 do, we use our wisdom, right, our intelligence, and, and we try to plan for calamity that might happen in the future. And we try to we try to soften the blow. So that means maybe we get insurance, life insurance or medical insurance just in case something is going to happen to us that we won't be financially devastated. That's a whole other topic. Uh, health insurance these days that I'll completely stay away from. But, but that, that's exercising prudence, right? You're, to be wise is to say, right? We live in a fallen and unbroken world. So I need to to do things, to, to plan, to use the wisdom that God has given me to help soften the blow when calamity comes. And that's essentially exercising prudence. And Solomon tells us to exercise prudence by telling us to invest in our future. Verse 11 of Ecclesiastes, verse 1 of Ecclesiastes 11 says, Send your bread on the surface of the water, for after many days you may find it. And so this phrase of wisdom is probably outside of our context right in the in the modern century but but to the the seafaring uh, uh, people of the of the old world in where solomon is writing right the tenth, uh, first century bc 10th 10, 1000 bc uh, roughly around there that would be um, talking about the 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 ships that would send you know would go from port to port and exchange goods and stuff like that. And he says, exercise prudence by, by sending, by investing into your future is ultimately what he's trying to say here in our, in our language, in our vernacular. Send your bread on the surface of the water. Send it down the road. Invest. Take the things, the excess that you have and invest it. Send it down the road to sell it later or, or whatever that might look like for their context. But for us, it's to, to, to take the, the money that we have left over or sometimes we don't have it left over but to exercise prudence is to invest into the future and then he says for after many days you may find it if you do that if you plan for the future it may help you when calamity comes in the future and he tells us to to diversify those investments in verse two give a portion to seven or even to eight right don't put all your eggs in one basket 
Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you don't know what disaster may happen on earth. Right? Anyone that has a 401k, you're the guy that you talk to, or you're, you're right, he says, you need to diversify your investments. So just in case that one company that you think is your gold, they're going to take you to, into retirement, into the golden age, right? If they fail and you have all your money in that one, one company, then you'll be without. So to, diver, to diversify is to be prudent in your investing. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you don't know what disaster may happen on earth. Verse 3, if the clouds are full, they will pour out rain on the earth. And whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, the place where the tree falls, there it will be. And so he's just reminding us of the mere fact of chance. The storms will come, trees will fall, and we don't know if the tree's going to land in our yard or on our house. No one knows the future. Well, save one, I suppose. Right? And so to be prudent is to understand that calamity may come and there's chance uh, in no matter what is the case. Something may indeed happen. And he goes on to to suggest to us in verse 4 through 6 that uh, being prudent doesn't necessarily negate all the risk. Right? Just because you plan for the future and and invest towards uh, ensuring yourself against calamity in the future doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be avoid or avoid of all risk. And we know that in this world. It's what he says in verse 4. One who watches the wind will not sow, and the one who looks at the clouds will not reap. And he's saying if someone gets so paralyzed with a fear, what may happen? In the future, what calamity is going to... Then they become so paralyzed, they become useless. Right? The guy wakes up, the farmer wakes up, and he says, oh, there's, there's a little bit of a breeze. It's going to turn into a big gale today, and it's going to blow away all my seeds, so I'm not going to sow today. And he's paralyzed with what calamity may happen in the future. And so the one who watches the wind will not sow, and the one who looks at the clouds will not reap. Oh, there's a couple of clouds in the, in the sky. It's going to turn into this disastrous downpour, and it's going to wash away all my work, so I'm just not going to, I'm not going to sow today. And so Solomon's reminding us that no matter how prudent we are to ensure us against future calamity, it doesn't negate the risk, but it doesn't absolve us from the responsibility of, of carrying out what has been charged for us, what, it, what we are, our responsibilities in this life. He goes on, Just as you don't know the path of the wind or how bones develop in the womb of a pregnant woman. So remember, uh, first century, 10th century BC here. And so he's, he's, he, he's saying at that point, or in that context, we have, in today's context, we have great medical uh, understanding of, of babies in the womb and, and, and all that just magnificent ultrasounds and all that stuff that we have today. Obviously, they did, they did not have that context. You know, they didn't have the weathermen. And, you know, that's the job. If, if someone were to ask me, what job should you pursue I would say a weatherman, because you can be wrong like 90% of the time and still keep your job, right? Anyway, that's a rabbit trail that I'm trying not to go down. So just as you don't know the path of the wind or how bones develop in the womb of a pregnant woman, so we don't know what tomorrow holds as humans, we don't know. And so we can't let the, the, the fear of something happening paralyze us from, from working and that would not be prudent. So also you don't know. Uh, so also you don't know the work of God who makes everything. So he's 
he's alluding back to the fact that it is God who knows everything, right? We've mentioned several times in this series the sovereignty of God. This is his creation. He is in control, and he is carrying out his purposes. And so we may not know what's going to happen to, the fall, to, for, to us tomorrow, but God does. I'm reminded of Isaiah 44, where God uses the prophet Isaiah to proclaim this of who God is. He says, I am the first and I am the last. That same language that the Apostle John picks up in Revelation to declare Jesus as the Alpha, the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and the Omega, the last letter, the first and the last, expressing Jesus' deity as God. We are monotheistic as the Jews were. There is only one God. And God has revealed Himself to be the only God. There is no other God beside Him. And our God is not a human. Although religions and humanity have spent their entire time trying to reduce God down to a man or to something we can understand, when He is vastly beyond our comprehension, He has declared Himself to be one God, yet distinct in three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, for all eternity, forever, before time even began, God has existed in that way. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, co-eternal, co-equal, in perfect bond of unity and love. Yet one God sharing the same essence of God. All completely, all three persons completely God. That is who God has revealed himself to be. That is the God that we declare to be the creator because he, he, it is he who has revealed himself in his word. I am the first, he says in Isaiah 44, 6 and 7. I am the last. There is no God but me. Who like me can announce the future, he asks. It's only God that can announce the future. He is in control of all things. So we may not know, but God does. And Solomon reminds that of that of this us of that this morning. Verse six in the morning, sow your seed, and at evening do not let your hand rest, because you don't know which will succeed. Whether one or the other, or if both of them will be or if both of them will be equally good. So his his wisdom for us, is if we're going to be prudent in this life, practically, we need to sow in the morning in spite of what the wind might be doing. And we need, at night, we also need to be working. Again, diversifying. Because you know, he says we don't know which one's going to be the one that's going to uh, be successful. So we need to be diligent about working towards the future. Whether one or the other, you don't know which one's going to succeed, or if both of them will be equally as good. Hey, you might both you get might get harvest from both of them—the stuff that you do at night and the sowing that you do in the morning—and that is who someone who is wise and practicing wisdom. That is what their life would look like. He goes on in verses seven through eight to remind us. Again, I'm envisioning him as this old cynical sage up in front of a bunch of young young men and. He's trying to give them this wisdom. And, and I like this. And I changed the title f- from what I said last night to Stop and Smell the Roses. He says, Light is sweet, and it is pleasing for the eyes to see the sun. I was reminded of that last week. Man, I, I am a guy that needs the sunlight. 
And when it was dark and gloomy for all those days last week and we didn't see the sun, I'm just like, I need the sun. And this week, even though it was like two degrees, right, the sun has been out. And Tara and I were talking about it this morning. You, you get in your car, you crank up the heater, and you, you get your cheek close to the window, and you can feel the, the heat from the, the light coming in. And she says, then you can turn on your app and turn on the waves it's, and close your eyes. You can almost pretend like you're at the ocean, and it's really hot, and the sun's coming down, right? The light is sweet, and it is pleasing for the eyes to see the sun. And what he's doing is he's reminding us as Dark and difficult and trying as this life can be sometimes. God has still given us much to be thankful for in this life. The sun on a cold day. The air that we breathe. The love that we share with one another and with our families. It's so easy for us to to dwell on the the bad things, but God has given us good things to dwell on and to to see light is sweet and it's pleasing for the eyes to see the sun remember those moments when you're in the light and in the warmth of it and he's reminding us to do so because in verse 8 indeed if someone lives many years let him rejoice in them all and let him remember the days of darkness since they will be since they will be many so he's reminding those these younger men or women both whatever reminding us right the longer you live the more dark days you're going to have. So when the light is light, enjoy the light. Stop and smell the roses because there are going to be trials. Boy, I wish salvation included the complete deliverance from all the trials that we find ourselves in in this world, right? It's not the case. I mean, ultimately there is. The promise of the new heaven and the new earth to come. But in this life, as we seek to live out His purposes, we understand that it doesn't, uh, our relationship with Him doesn't necessarily promise us that we'll be removed from trials. It's almost it's just the only promise that we have is that He will not forsake us in the midst of them. And that's good enough. All that comes is futile, He says, right? So, again, with that same understanding, anything and everything that's happening under the sun, it's futile, it's vain, because that's just life. You might have some good moments, but you'll have many dark days. Thank God for the gospel and the understanding of what he's done for us in Christ and the eternal perspective. Verses 9 and 10, being prudent with our days, right? Rejoice, young person, while you are young, and let your heart be glad in the days of your youth. Everyone that's, and people are going to roll their eyes at me, that's over 40 or 45, right? They, we understand that. Because when you're young, right, you have all the energy in the world, Nothing hurts in your body for the most part. I guess there's, right? But then all of a sudden you get old and the next thing you know, man, I just want to go to bed. That's, that's what I'm living for, right? And what is going on with all these aches and pains and why does my medications continue to increase because I have one, right? And so he's reminding the young person, while you're young, enjoy it. Enjoy your youth. Enjoy the energy and the vigor that God has given you and let your heart be glad in the days of your youth and walk in the ways of your heart and in the desire of your eyes. But know that for all of these things, God will bring you to judgment. And so here's a little curveball he's thrown at us, right? Because in the New Testament context, the complete revelation of, of, of what has God has given us, right? That it's good right up until that, that point where he says, um, and walk in the ways of your heart and the desires of your eyes. 
Because we know with the entirety of God's Scripture, we are warned not to do that. Again, Solomon's paradigm, his lens he's looking through, is just not considering God, but what he's observing under the sun. If all it is is under the sun, then eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. But with the understanding of what God is doing, with we have the different lens. We have seen it through the eternal perspective that God has given us. And we know that his prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 17.9 said, The heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can trust it? We're not to trust our hearts because we're born with the heart that is right in rebellion to God. And Jeremiah says, We can't trust that heart. It's deceitful more than anything else. Right? Jesus told us that it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles us. It's what comes out of the mouth because that's the picture of our heart before we encounter Jesus. He says the, the eyes, desire to follow after the, what you desire your, your, with your eyes. And, and John warns us in his first epistle, right? Um, that's not good advice. He says for all, in First John 2.16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, it is not from the Father, but it is of the world. And so that is a perspective, a worldly perspective that he's given there. And we are to, in the New Testament context, pursue the eternal perspective on what God um, has warned us against, that we might live for His glory. So a little curveball we have to kind of go through there in verse 9, but verse 10, remove sorrow from your heart and put away pain from your flesh, right? Because youth and the prime of life are fleeting. So again, these are... Glass half full or glass empty? What are you, what are you dwelling on? The, the negative or the good in life? And so he's saying exercise wisdom by focusing on the good. Put away the pain of your flesh because youth and the prime of life are fleeting. Enjoy it while you can because none of us are guaranteed tomorrow. So that's what's given to us in Ecclesiastes. But again, I, this idea of prudence, of, of working or laboring or uh, exercising our, what God has given us Right with with prudence is to is to invest in the things of from the New Testament context and the things of God. Again, Solomon's conclusion is to fear God and keep His commandments, to to walk with Him, and to glorify God in our walk. And and so uh, I just want to take some more time to to try to apply it to to our context today. To be prudent in the New Testament context, what does it mean to labor for God and not ourselves? And the the first point i just have two points that i want to cover with you this morning the first one is prudence in the new testament context is investing in what lasts right solomon says invest in your future by sending things down the line down the waterways and it might come back to you and the new testament declares that the the investment that we put in towards the kingdom of god and and what he's doing right is is the thing that will last Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3 about, and he, he uses the whole uh, agricultural um, idea of, of sowing seed, right? Planting seed and then reaping the harvest later. And in 1 Corinthians 3, he, he's t- trying to tell the church, he's like, you guys are like all divisive over, you're saying some people follow me and some people follow Apollos. And, and he, sa- he ultimately comes down to and says, look, some people plant in God's kingdom, plant the seed, Others may come along later and water that seed, but ultimately it's not the men 
who provides salvation. It is God who provides the increase. He says in 1 Corinthians 3. And he goes on to say, Now he who plants, in verse 8 here, Now he who plants and he who waters are one. It's all for the same purpose. And each will receive his own reward according to his labor. So again, prudence in the New Testament perspective is investing in what will last. And Paul's telling us that the eternal reward that for those who understand this concept right, will last. Essentially what he says here in this passage. Verse 9, for we are God's co-workers. You are God's field. God's building. God saved us. If you've encountered Jesus in a saving way, He's kept you here for a reason and a purpose to be His, right? His field. We're co-workers with God. God desires to use us to proclaim the good news to those around us and throughout the world. It is We are His instruments. We're God's building because God the Spirit dwells within us. Verse 10, according to God's grace that was given to me, I have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder and another builds on it. So he said, look, I've, as an apostle, I've come and I've, with the other apostles, laid the foundation, Ephesians says. Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone and it's that foundation that the church, those who are, hear the gospel and believe and receive it and then proclaim, right, build upon that foundation. But each one to be careful how he builds on it, Right? It's true that all of us co-labor with God in that, but we all need to be circumspect in that because that is to fear God in our lives. To be prudent with what God has given us, our wealth and our talents, all those things. Verse 11, For no one can lay any foundation other than what has been laid down. The foundation is Jesus Christ. Amen? It is Christ. Again, the foundation is what Christ has done and, and your... your um, Personal salvation as you've heard the gospel message. That's the foundation as we spoke about last week. The faith in Christ is the foundation for all good works that we do. If we don't have and start with the foundation of believing and trusting in God and in salvation in Christ alone, then we're just moralistic people. We're just religious people. We're just doing good things to try to earn God's favor. And that's not the motivation we find in Scripture. The motivation is, look what Christ has done. And I want to express His love He gave to me to others around me to reflect what He's done because I'm just so overwhelmed by what He's done. And that's the motivation to seek after God, to walk in fear of Him and respect and to glorify God in our lives. The foundation is Jesus Christ. Verse 12, if anyone builds on the foundation of Jesus, right? With gold, silver, costly stones... Wood, hay, or stubble. So he's saying these are the building materials that you, you have. We have a choice every day whether we're going to work with the stuff that's going to last, we're going to work for the things that are going to last, or we're going to serve our own desires, the wood, hay, and stubble that's ultimately going to burn up. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or, st- or straw, each one's work will become obvious, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. So what we decide to do, right? We talked about last week. It's a choice every day. And if you're like me, it's every moment. (laughs) Right? Because I'm pretty selfish. I like to do my own thing. 
But if I'm seeking after God's to glorify God in my life, this is, must be the constant reminder and mantra in my mind. My des- decision to, to seek for God and His glory or seek satisfaction of my own selfish desires. Verse 14, If anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. The gold, silver, precious stone. Those are the things of the kingdom that will last. If anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss, but he himself will be saved. So we're not talking about salvation here, but it's the, those who are saved have an opportunity, right, to, to labor, to be prudent with God, what God has given them, to lay things up in heaven that will last. And not will just be burnt up in the judgment, but only as through fire. <clears throat> and so this is good, just a great reminder uh, verse 16, he says, don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God, God lives within you? God the Spirit, the third person of our triune God dwells within our heart. We are now His temple. And the t- Old Testament picture, the type that was expressed to us in Scripture is that the, holy, the temple was to be holy and completely dedicated to the work and service of God, and, and now we are its temple. And as much as we can, and as much as the, the Spirit of God uh, will empower us to do so, we are to live holy and dedicated for God's glory. And his reminder was, we are now the temple. And so the good news is, is we don't have to whip it up in our own right passion. The good news is it's more of a yielding, instead of a working yielding to the spirit seeking to do God's will and not our own as we'll talk about here in my last point so eternal perspective and again he right, right, uh, concludes 1 Corinthians 15 by saying this just a good reminder for us today right because this can easily be something like, like oh I just fail so miserably but that's hopefully, that's, I, I prayerfully, I, that's not the, the, the attitude I hope that you're walking away with this morning because we have a, our, right, God's mercies are new every morning. We have every opportunity that we have breath in this world gives us an opportunity to live for God's glory, afresh and anew. He says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It is the stuff. Laboring for God and for His kingdom is what will last. It's not in vain. And the second point that I have comes out, begins with, with James. The book of James. And my point is prudence, exercising prudence in the New Testament context uh, is ultimately pursuing God's will and not our own. It comes down to a very basic tenet. We encounter Christ in a saving way as we open up the Scriptures. As Solomon employed wisdom of this world, he, he found foolishness and vanity. But the New Testament declares that in Jesus Christ is all wisdom and knowledge. And so we pursue Christ as the ultimate source of knowledge and wisdom. And we see that the things that God has for us and has planned for us in the New Testament context is what is best 
for us and what gives God the glory in our lives. We are to pursue God's will. That's to be prudent and not our own. In every aspect of our lives. And all of us are at different points in our walk with that. Right? We don't compare ourselves with one another. Some of us have been walking with the Lord for a long time. Some of us have been and then we're you know, backslidden for many years. Right? We're all in different spots. But the, the point is, is, wherever you're at, God's calling you to pursue His will for you and not your own. And we want to come alongside of you and walk with you, but we're not here to judge you on how good you're doing. That's between you and the Lord. That's still His call for you to pursue His will for your life. Verse 13, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. He says, The guy that's just out there willing and dealing, and this is what I'm going to do because I'm in control, right? He's carrying out his own will. James reminds us, no. Verse 14, you do not know what tomorrow will bring and what your life will be. It's the same understanding that Solomon gave us as far as the calamity. that We don't know what calamity is going to lie for us in the future, nor does this person. As much as he thinks he's in control, he doesn't know what tomorrow will bring. What will your life be, he says, for you are like a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. In the context of eternity, this life that we have on this earth is but a vapor. That's hard for us to wrap our minds around, right? Some of you might be saying, oh, it's easy for you to say, <laughs> I don't know. But in the context of eternity, of, right, endless days, it's but a vapor. We have just this short time on this earth to glorify God in our life and walk in fear and admonition of Him so that He might be glorified. For you are a little vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Verse 15, instead you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And so he says, instead of doing what you think you should do, it's to yield to God. If the Lord wills, we are to be, to be prudent is to pursue God's will for our lives and not our own. It is he who knows what's best. James says, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So it's not bad to earn money and to do those things, but but what what are you pursuing? God's will in that or your own selfish desires? And I say money, but it can be anything in this world that offers it a tantalizing temptation to find satisfaction in what, Solomon has already exhaustively said, will never bring you ultimate satisfaction in this life. It is glorifying God. It is the reward that comes, the gold, silver, precious stone that comes for living our lives out for Him. So how do we do that? What does that look like? And I believe it's very basic, at least for me. It begins with prayer. Prayer. I know I'm selfish. I have my own desires and they want to overcome what God's will is. You know, I want to be in control of my life and I, want, I think I know what's best for me. And so it's this constant attitude of prayer going, not my will, God, but yours. The apostles asked Jesus, How, teach us to pray. In Matthew 6, he says, therefore you should pray this way. So Jesus is teaching us how we are to pray. Our Father in heaven, 
And I wouldn't say this is something that we should do by rote. You can pray it by rote, but it's an example of what our prayer should look like. Right? First, we're praying to the Father, the Creator of all things, who is holy. Hallowed be your name. Our Father in heaven, your name to be honored as holy. And then what, what does Jesus say? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus says, pray to the Father, hallowed be his name, and ask for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because it's God's will, what God is doing in this creation that will last. And he goes on, give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Right? We're to forgive others as God has forgiven us and do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Right? We have an enemy. His, he is the devil and he desires to, to tear us down and to break our fellowship with God and to, be, to make our testimony uh, mute in this world. And Jesus says, pray to the Father that we will not be brought into temptation and that we be delivered from this evil one. Jesus says, pray these things. This is how you pray. But getting back to the point at hand, God's will be done. To be prudent with what God has given us is to pursue God's will in our life and not our own. And it's really seen in in what Jesus' prayer was in the Garden of Gethsemane. On the night he was betrayed, right, and taken arrest and captive, he knew what was coming. Just before the, 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 he, the guards came or the military Romans came to haul him off, he knew what was coming. Not only was he going to be whipped and scourged and, and spat on and, and, and forced to carry his cross to the, to the hill and all the physical things that were going to happen to him, not only that was going to happen, but then the wrath of God for sin was going to be poured out upon him. He knew what was coming. And this is what his prayer was to the Father. Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. And I think that's important for us to just stop and pause right there. Because Jesus is being honest with his human side. Right? This is overwhelming. I know what's coming. In the, I don't, it might, you know, I don't, I want to escape it if I can. He's being honest with the Father where he is. He's expressing where he's at. And if Jesus is honest and open to the Father about where he's at, as far as pursuing God's will in our lives, we can be honest too because he hardly knows. We can be honest and saying, God, I know my will does not measure up and come into alignment with your will. I know that I have these selfish things that I want to hold on to. And I know that's not what your will is for me. But that's where I'm in. I am. And I think we can be honest with that. Or what you've asked me to do, God, is too overbearing. I can't do it in my own strength. This is what Jesus does. He goes to the Father. As a father figure, the Father is there. Right? He's, Christ has made a way for us to come to the Father as a father. And asking for help. In this particular instance, Jesus says, If you're willing, take this cup away from me. But nevertheless, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus had this 
desire to not have to go through what he was going to go through. But yet, he yielded to the will of the Father. And it was through prayer that he asked the Father to help him. And so if it's prudent for us to exercise God's will, to pursue God's will in our lives, I think we need to start with the very basic of going to the Father, being open and honest, saying, I'm so broken. My selfish desires are not in line with what your will is for me. Father, would you help me to the power of your Spirit? Change me, transform me, Make my affections new and more in alignment with what you're doing, your will for my life, and not what I think I need. We can go to the Father for help in prayer and say, not my will, God, but yours be done. And that is what a wise and prudent Christian should be like. Always seeking God's will for their lives and every aspect of their life. Why? For God's glory. That we might live for God's glory in this world. And that his name would be made high and lifted up and be made known in our lives. And for his sake, let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity, God, to be reminded of what it means to be prudent, both practically in this life, to take the blessings you've given us, material blessings, Lord, and to invest in the future in this world to protect those are all good things god but um father i'm also thankful for the eternal perspective you've given us in the new testament that week in matthew lord if anyone who finds his life in this world it is they who will lose it but if anyone who loses his life because of me it is they who will find it father help us change us into the image of jesus Father, allow our desires and our affections and what our will is to be more in alignment with yours that you might receive glory in that. We can't do it in our own strength, God. We ask that you would do a mighty work in us. We ask it for your glory's sake. In the name of Jesus, amen.